Our God and Father in heaven, we are thankful that we can meet together this evening to sing and to praise your great name and to confess indeed our faith, O Lord, in prayer as we sing back to you your promises that you will indeed provide for us in all of our needs, that through every trial and before every temptation, you will go before us to strengthen and help us, that you will never leave nor forsake those whom you have named as your own in Jesus Christ. We're thankful for your providential care over us through the first half of this week, for your protection, for the power that you work in us and upon us and through us, And we pray that your spirit would continue to strengthen us, to wrestle with us and for us and for our eternal good. We pray, Lord, that you would make us more and more fit vessels of ministry and mercy toward those whom we meet day by day. And that you would bless us as a congregation, that we would grow in love and faith and in unity with one another and in our outward-facing ministry to this community and in other parts of this world. We ask your blessing upon our brethren and loved ones who are ill and those who are suffering various trials and adversities, that you would strengthen and help those who are uh, being sorely tested, that you would care for those who are in danger, that you would heal those who are ill, that you would bless those who are recovering from surgery and those who are facing it even in the coming days. Watch over our brothers and sisters who travel and bless us, O God, in the opportunities that we have been given in this world. We pray that in everything that we meet and in every place that we go and in all that we do, we would truly honor you. Bless us tonight as we open your word. Strengthen our understanding of your holy scriptures. We pray, God, that you would cheer our heart, make us wise, and cause us to expect and indeed to believe that the gospel is indeed your power unto man's salvation. We pray that you would strengthen us and help us through this time of study and watch over us through the, what remains of this night. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I'm going to open to uh, Matthew chapter 6. If you want to follow along there, I want to uh, remind you of a few things that are very familiar from the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's uh, introduction to and then particular statement of the Lord's Prayer which will kind of introduce the major theme of our study this evening. We are talking about an optimistic eschatology and specifically an optimism that is oriented upon God's promises for the present world and not just for a future world to come. All Christians are optimistic about the end of the story. We want to be optimistic about the latter chapters of the story and not just uh, the way in which it ends. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the Lord's Prayer that we offer together liturgically every Lord's Day and that the ancient church uh, was taught to pray three times every day. Some of you may have that tradition or you might pray it once a day or you might not pray it at all. I've told you before that the churches I grew up in uh, would never recite the Lord's Prayer. They didn't believe that that was an appropriate use of it. They denied its liturgical value, but they did treat it as a model for prayer. And it is certainly a model for prayer. Nothing in uh, Jesus' teaching here indicates that it can only be recited by the people of God. But I do think Jesus indicates it ought to be recited by the people of God. And I want to point out to you some of that as we begin our study this evening. I'm going to read in Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. The Lord speaking in the Sermon on the Mount says this, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward 
But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then in uh, Luke chapter 11, uh, in a parallel text, I don't think it's the same occasion, uh, and that will account for some of the differences both in the context and even in the form of the prayer as it's given here. But in Luke chapter 11, on another occasion, it says in verse 1, it came to pass as Jesus was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And I would just point out that Jesus there says, when you pray, say these words. So it's not invalid to speak those very words. That may not be the only way that you use it. Nobody's suggesting that that's the only thing that you should take from it. But Jesus gives this form to his disciples on at least these two occasions. And in at least one of these cases, he tells his disciples, when you pray, say the following. And he gives them a liturgical form to use. Now, in the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount, the discussion there, Jesus does not indicate that praying the Lord's Prayer in this way would fall under the heading of vain repetitions that he's warned the disciples against. And I realize that's why some Christians have thought we should not merely recite the Lord's Prayer because then it just becomes a type of vain repetition. Well, no, that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. I suppose you could repeat those words in vain if you're not attending to the things that you're saying, if you're simply kind of reciting them by rote memorization and you are not praying in your heart to the Lord. But really, that's not what Jesus has in mind here. He has in mind the kind of babbling and incantation that is thought to evoke some kind of blessing from the gods. And Jesus is very clear that is not the way in which proper biblical prayer ought to be offered at all. The other thing that's interesting is that he says we are not to make a show of praying, and as he says elsewhere, we are not to elongate our prayers unnecessarily. Now, that's not to say that it's wrong to pray for a long period of time. Certainly, that can be a biblically appropriate thing to do, but it's not a necessary thing to do. Like, what are you trying to do? You're trying to inform God about a situation that he doesn't already know more about than you will ever know? I mean, you're trying to give him all of the the facts and the information and all of the personal relationships and the history and, you know, the book chapter in verse and praying his promises back to him, like he doesn't actually need all of that from you. Prayer is primarily to change you. 
Prayer does change things in this world. Prayer does make a difference in the unfolding history of the universe. But the primary thing that prayer is intended to change is you. And so biblically, and I would say historically, prior to the Reformation, what you see is more often shorter prayers and more of them rather than fewer prayers and longer ones. Now, after the Reformation, that does change somewhat, and especially in the Puritan tradition, there would be more often fewer prayers but longer prayers, and that's not to say that that's necessarily a bad tradition. But what you see Jesus referring to here and what you see in the Psalms, in the worship of the Old Testament, in the worship of the New Testament, in the worship of the early and medieval churches that we have recorded for us in various liturgies is more prayers, shorter prayers. We get to the point, we are calling upon the Lord, and we are trusting him for the answer. One of the things I want to point out to you tonight, though, is that in both forms of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives us in Matthew 6 and Luke chapter 11, this key phrase appears, Thy kingdom come. And the Lord's Prayer is a liturgical form that explicitly petitions God to bring his kingdom to cause his kingdom to arise, to appear, to be established. In fact, it's in an imperative form. It's not just, Lord, maybe if you can, we would really like it if you would. It's commanding the Lord in prayer. Now, obviously, in a a humble way, right? But it's an imperative form that when we come before the Lord, we come with humble boldness. And this is what we are boldly asking the Father to do in the name of Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, who is the one animating our prayers. In other words, you're not bringing your wish list to the Lord and commanding Him. Now what I want is a red sports car. And I want more money in the bank. And I want a bigger house. Right? I I, I want these kinds of... No. No. You are bringing the Lord's list of petitions. Jesus gave you this list. And He says, when you pray, say to the Father, among other things... Thy kingdom come. Let your kingdom be established in this world. You're supposed to say that. You're supposed to pray that. You do, in fact, pray that. Whether you pray it every day or not, you pray it if you're a member of this church. And so as we are praying that, have you reflected upon what exactly you are praying for? I want to suggest to you that there are several different ways that we can think about this, and I want to go through what I consider to be multiple aspects of the kingdom of God and its coming and the kinds of ways in which we might think about this prayer as we offer it day by day and week by week. First of all, we can think about the church as the kingdom of God. In fact, our own Westminster Confession of Faith describes the kingdom in this way. Chapter 25, Article 2, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, I think that is perfectly fine insofar as it goes. But like everything else in any confession or creed written by man, it's not exhaustive in what it says. In other words, what it says is true, but it's not all that could be said. Because after all, I hope by now you've become convinced through this series of studies that the kingdom of God is a larger theme in Scripture than just the church, the visible church 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the visible church is in a particular way, is in a preeminent fashion the manifestation, the earthly establishment of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. You don't see the kingdom rule of Christ as clearly anywhere else as you see it in the church of the Lord Jesus this very day. And so what the confession is saying is true, the the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord, but the kingdom is a much bigger concept than just that. But I would ask you the question, when Jesus tells his disciples to pray these words, is he telling them, pray these words so that the church will be established at Pentecost? Because that was going to happen a relatively short period of time after that Jesus gave uh, this prayer to the disciples. In other words, is this prayer going to have any validity 18 months after Jesus teaches it to his apostles? Is that what they're praying for? And then the the prayer is going to be answered at Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit's going to come upon the apostles, and 3,000 are going to be baptized and added to the Lord, and then the prayer will have been fulfilled and there will be nothing more to say. Well, no, obviously not. Yes, there is a sense in which the kingdom rule of Jesus is going to appear, it's going to be manifested at Pentecost in a particular way, in a way that kind of uh, evokes all of the Old Testament promises about the Messianic age and the blessing of the Spirit being poured out upon all nations, and yet that's not the end of that prayer. If anything, that's just the beginning of its fulfillment. Another way we could think of uh, of the kingdom of God is as the new covenant itself. And and Jesus inaugurating the new creation. And we started talking about this on Sunday morning in the short sermon series that we're doing. We talked about the idea of inaugurated eschatology. Well, in many ways, Jesus in his life, in his ministry, in his death and resurrection, he is starting the new creation. His resurrection, in fact, is the first event in a new genesis, in a new world. And his prophecies of destruction against Jerusalem, against the temple, against the old Mosaic order that culminate in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was a judgment of the old world, of the old creation. And so some would look at this language in the Lord's Prayer and attribute it to that. This prayer is looking toward the triumph of the new covenant, toward the new heavens and earth that are coming now to be in this present world, in the person and in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I I think there's an aspect in which for the first 40 years of the church's history as they prayed these words, that was in fact in view. In Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and following, Jesus describes the destruction of Jerusalem as I take it. I know many people would read this passage and think it's the end of the world, but I think this is a parallel to the Olivet Discourse, and you can read it and see probably why I think that. But just a few examples from that text. As it was in the days of Noah, Jesus says, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. The one will be taken and the other left. If this is the rapture that many Christians think is still in the future for us today, why does Jesus have to tell us, now now don't go down into the house and get your go bag before the rapture, right? I mean, I I thought the rapture was going to be sudden and secret and, and, you know, all of a sudden all of these cars are unmanned, right? You've got got them veering off the roads, right, or whatever. Uh, Jesus is saying, now before this happens, when this is beginning to unfold, don't go down into the house and get anything. Don't pack a bag. You don't need your toothbrush, right? Uh, He compares it, though, to the days of Noah. And what happened in the days of Noah? The world was destroyed. 
the world was destroyed. Well, what world was being destroyed in AD 70? It was the old world. It was the Mosaic economy. It was the former covenant with Israel. The, the new creation, the new covenant is being inaugurated in the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus, and the old world is coming to its completion in AD 70. And so there is a sense in which, as the earliest Christians are praying, thy kingdom come, that is surely part of what they are looking forward to, even if they don't fully understand it. But if that's all that that was looking forward to, well, again, would we say that that petition has expired, right? If, if the kingdom is just the church, then, well, the church is established 18 months after they learned the prayer. If it's, if it's looking at AD 70, then 40 years later, we don't need to pray this anymore. But, of course, there's more to say. The Bible also indicates that there is a future, eternal, consummated aspect of the kingdom of God. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I, I, I would take this, and I realize not all commentators would agree with this, even some men that I highly respect and appreciate, but I would take that as a reference to the consummated kingdom of Christ. Not just, as you do these things, you will enter into the kingdom of God as it now presently exists, because the brethren to whom he's writing are already in that kingdom. And, and you don't enter into that kingdom by means of your works, by means of your growth in grace, by means of your further sanctification. But guess what? You do enter into that consummated kingdom that way because we are saved by grace through faith apart from works, but we are saved for good works. Right? Good works are the way of salvation, right? Not the way to earn anything from God, but it's the way that we live. It's the way that we walk. It's the fruit of our faith that, that ultimately culminates in our final entrance into the kingdom of God, as, as Jesus calls the nations before him and says, well done. I think that's what Peter has in mind here. He's saying, be diligent, add to your faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, all, so on and so forth. And in so doing, you will enter into the everlasting kingdom of God. So there is a still future aspect to that kingdom. Are we in the kingdom right now? Yes, absolutely. We saw that in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and many other texts that we could have cited on Sunday morning. But is there a sense in which the everlasting kingdom is yet to be fully realized? Certainly. Well, I mean, I, I certainly hope so. Like if, this, if this is the consummated kingdom of God, it's a bit underwhelming, right? But no, the Bible says that there is still a future everlasting kingdom of God. Now, I think that it is this third sense that almost all Christians have in mind when they pray the Lord's Prayer right now. I, I, I don't think that most Christians, when they pray the Lord's Prayer, they think that we're praying a historical artifact about the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost. Well, no. Or I think we're praying about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and we're just looking back and kind of praying in solidarity with our brothers and sisters from 2,000 years ago. No, I don't think that's what's going on. I think the vast majority of Christians are saying, Thy kingdom come by which we mean Jesus comes again, the dead are raised, the world is judged, the eternal state is ushered in. And that's a great thing to pray for. Like, oh Lord, come. Like, we want that day to come. But is that the only reference for this prayer? I don't think so. I think there's at least one more. And that is the acknowledgement of Christ's rule and obedience of all the nations as the kingdom of God advances. Because what have we seen so far? 
We've seen in all of these prophecies and promises from the Old Testament and language in the New Testament as well that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, is going to be like leaven, which was hidden in dough. It's going to be like a seed planted in the ground that begins very small and then grows into something very significant. It's going to be like a rock cut out without hands that grows into a mountain that then grows until it fills the entire earth. In other words, there is a gradual, progressive aspect to the kingdom of God that is not just final and eternal in its orientation, but is actually earthly in its manifestation. For example, in Isaiah 42, in one of the servant prophecies that are given by this particular prophet of the Lord, he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. We read that passage with regard to the Old Testament survey that we did, and here's another reminder of it. There is that idea of the progressive aspect, the gradual aspect of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is going to begin, and then it is going to grow. It is going to mature. It is going to expand until, finally, it fills the entire earth. Isn't that what we see in the Revelation In the seventh trumpet as it's blown, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So Jesus is given the nations as his inheritance, Psalm 2. He will rule over them with a rod of iron, the scripture says. He will rule until all of his enemies have been put under his feet, Psalm 110. That will be a gradual progress of rule and authority until justice is established throughout all the world, as Isaiah 42 says. In other words, when we say, thy kingdom come, we're not just thinking about the second coming. We're not just thinking about the last day. We're not just thinking about the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment of the world, and the eternal state. In other words, we are not just praying for a cataclysmic or catastrophic manifestation of the kingdom of God. That's not all that the scriptures talk about. In fact, I would argue, and I will argue before we're done tonight, that that the scriptures don't even really talk that way very often. Most often, when they talk that way, it is a very narrow, specific, historical reference. It's looking at Jerusalem, or it's looking at Babylon, or it's looking at Egypt. And it's not talking globally, don't worry, the world is going to go to hell in a handbasket for generation after generation after generation, then Jesus is going to come back at the end of it all and fix it all, just in a moment in time. That's not the way the scriptures describe this at all. On the contrary, it's like seed, it's like leaven, it's like a growing mountain that will ultimately fill the world. Now, do we have to choose between these various senses? I don't think so. That when we say, thy kingdom come, there is a sense in which all of these dimensions ought to be in our mind. That in one sense we are praying, Lord, you have brought your kingdom, now bring its fullness. You established your kingdom in the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of your Son. You poured out your Spirit and established the rule of Christ visibly on earth in the church. 
You brought judgment upon the world that once was, and you have ushered in the new creation, the kingdom of God. But you are also bringing that kingdom to its maturity, to its fullness. And that's what we're praying. We are not just praying, Jesus, come back and get us out of here. You're praying that the rule of Jesus, the reign of Christ, would be extended and established over all nations. And this is exactly the way that the Westminster Larger Catechism actually interprets this petition in the Lord's Prayer. Question 191 says this, In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate, that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins and the confirming, comforting, and building up of those that are already converted, that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and our reigning with him forever, and that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends. Now that is a complex answer. That's an extensive exposition of all that is involved in this little expression, thy kingdom come. But I think what the assembly was doing there is just unpacking everything that I just said biblically is involved in thinking about the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom as the church. There's the kingdom as the new creation. There's the kingdom as the rule and reign of Christ over all the nations that's gradual and comprehensive until he subdues all enemies. And then there is his coming again and his final judgment of all things. And you see all of that in that answer. There's an ecclesiastical aspect to the kingdom. There's a creational aspect to the kingdom. There's a cosmological aspect to the kingdom. And there's an eschatological aspect to the kingdom. And when you are praying, thy kingdom come, that is the frame of reference. It doesn't need to be so narrow as, as, to, as to either be a, a meaningless phrase that you're praying, but you're not really sure what you're praying. Like, thy kingdom come, isn't the kingdom here? Well, yeah, yes, it, yes, it kind of is. Well, then what are you praying, what are you praying to come? I'm, I'm praying for Jesus to come back and destroy the world. Does that sound like the kingdom coming to you? Or does that seem, sound like the kingdom concluding? Thy kingdom conclude, right? No, it's all of these dimensions. And yes, it culminates in the return of the king. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you hear the Bible story for the very first time, and you have no context whatsoever for it. I've said many times before that the passages that we think we know the best have the most to teach us, because those are the passages that we don't pay attention to anymore, like the Lord's Prayer. I know it so well that I can recite it from memory, and so I'm not necessarily reflecting upon it carefully. Well, I want you to think about the story of Scripture, the story of salvation, as if you are hearing it for the very first time. God makes a wonderful world, fills it with life and various delights for the creatures. It is a place where he enjoys relationship with the man and the woman who take care of all of the animals and take care of the earth on behalf of their maker. One day, an evil spirit enters the garden where the man and woman live. He tricks the woman into disobeying the maker 
And the man, instead of protecting his wife from the Spirit, instead submits to the Spirit and agrees to disobey the Maker's law. And now the man and woman are no longer happy. Their relationship with the Maker has been damaged. They find themselves full of shame and sorrow. They hide from the Maker and then are told they must leave the garden. The world is cursed and begins to bear thorns instead of good food to eat. Their lives are filled with pain. They begin to have children, but those children are children of the curse. They themselves are sinners by nature and full of envy and wickedness. Their children begin to murder and to steal and to make the world that was once good a terrible and a terrifying place. Then the maker becomes a man. And he enters into his creation. As a man, the maker lives a perfect life. He shows men and women how to obey the maker and how to enjoy their life once again, but that's not enough. It doesn't fix anything that is truly wrong. And so the man-maker takes the curse from the world and puts it on his own shoulders. He accepts the punishment which the man and the woman owed for their disobedience, but were unable to pay. He dies and then returns to life so that all of the men and women and the world itself can be forgiven, recreated, and declared very good once again. Now, that's the gospel story. If you heard that for the first time, if you're reading that in a fairy tale book with your children, what would you assume happens next? Would you assume that the coming of the Maker and His work of death and resurrection to rescue and redeem the world, would you assume that it makes things better in the world or worse? Would you assume that it improves the situation or leaves it largely unchanged? Now, of course, in one sense, all Christians are going to say, well, of course it makes it better. Because now men and women can be forgiven of their sins and they can go to heaven when they die and we know that one day Jesus will come back and he will judge the world with fire and and bring in the new heavens and earth. Okay, fine, fair enough. But do you think that the coming of the Son of God in this kind of a context would make any real difference in the world as it presently stands? Now I can imagine someone might object and say, well, it might make things worse in the short term. Because after all, maybe all of these rebels and sinners are going to hate what the Maker has done and are going to further resist and rebel against His rule. We can believe that that's the case. We could see that kind of reaction anticipated even in Psalm 2. But do you think that the coming of the Son of God is going to actually make a material difference? I think that's an interesting question. And I think to ask the question is really to answer it. Because, of course, you would assume that if the maker becomes a man and does this for his creation, it is going to make a difference, and that difference is going to be for the good. Listen to how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, 
when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Do you hear that passage a little bit differently after me telling you the story in the way that I did? In other words, if you think about the gospel in a little bit of a different frame of reference, you try to, try to step back and see it again for the first time, and then you come to a passage like 1 Corinthians 15. Do you hear it a little bit differently? Do you see the difference that Christ's coming has made? And it's not just with regard to that final eschatological aspect. Yes, obviously, there's an eschatological trajectory. We have borne the image of the man of dust. We are going to bear the image of the man of heaven. We have been uh, earthly and physical, now we're going to be spirit. Yet there's that eschatological trajectory culminating in the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. But you see that Paul's orientation is not merely to that final day. He says Christ has been raised. He is the first fruits. Everything has changed. And it's changing for the better As we said early in our study, John chapter 3, verse 17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Not just people from the world, but the world itself. As Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Take your Bible and turn to Isaiah 35. This is a passage we preached on a couple of three years ago, and I want to return your attention to now. We'll look at Isaiah 35 and then Isaiah 67 for just a minute. Isaiah 35 is not long, so I'm going to read all of it. Listen as I do. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of Yahweh, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, 
And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now some Christians might attribute this only to some future earthly millennium, when Jesus comes back after a time of tribulation, when there is a preliminary resurrection of the dead and a thousand-year earthly rule of Christ. I suppose you could fit that chapter into that kind of a framework, except that it would contradict uh, or seem to conflict with a lot of other things the Bible says. For instance, about the singularity of the resurrection event and the absence of evidence that Jesus actually rules on the earth in Jerusalem, as so many have anticipated. Other Christians, and I think a lot of Reformed Christians, would simply look at Isaiah 35 and just kind of spiritualize the description here. And it's obviously a a description of spiritual benefits, right? I mean, we would all acknowledge that. We would say that there is poetic imagery and that there are various motifs and metaphors here to describe the spiritual blessings of abundance that we have in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I want you to notice is that figurative language means something. It doesn't mean nothing. It means something. And that the blessings that are described are the blessings that we begin to see very tangibly, very physically, in a very earthly way, begin to be fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. He's the one who opens the ears of the deaf, who opens the mouth of the dumb. He's the one who gives sight to the blind. He's the one who gives joy. He's the one who brings springs of water, mercy, and grace into the wilderness that was Israel at that time. Now turn over to Isaiah 65 for just a minute and look at another passage that kind of is related to this very same theme. There's a lot in Isaiah that uh, we could study about this, but I'm just giving you a couple of examples tonight for the sake of time. In Isaiah 65, beginning at verse 17, and I realize this is probably going to prompt some questions tonight. I'll try to deal with that preliminarily, but then also stay tuned with the Sunday morning series because we're going to be talking a little bit about this idea of the new heavens and earth. But in verse 17 of Isaiah 65... For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of Yahweh and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says Yahweh. There will no longer be uh, fears from the threat of predators, right? The wolf and the lamb will lie down together in safety, but the serpent will be subjugated. Do you notice that? The dust is his food. And there is a description here of earthly life. Now, you can say, well, yes, but that's obviously obviously just describing the blessings of heaven. Really? What exactly does the death of the saints, you know, like portray about heaven? If this is the eternal state, what's, what's what's that imagery about? 
It's saying that the saints will live to an old age. The, the child will not die in infancy. The, the child that dies, the, the early mortality of this period will be 100 years old. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. Your, your child only lived to be 100. Oh, life's rough, right? That, that's the picture. Now, now you're saying this is, this is a picture of the spiritual blessings in Christ in the everlasting state. What exactly does that correspond to? You see, figurative language means something. Now, you say, but this is the new heavens and earth, Pastor. Verse 17 says so. That's, that's true. It's the new heavens and earth, which the New Testament associates not just with the eternal state, but with the new heavens and earth that's being built in Christ right now, that began with Jesus' resurrection, with the new creation, with the regeneration that's already begun. And is there a final consummation of that in the eternal new heavens and earth? Yes, indeed, there is. Yes, indeed, there is. I personally believe that that's what Revelation 21 and 22 are about. I realize there's some post-millennialists that will say, no, Revelation 21 and 22 are simply de- depictions of the glory of the church in, in kind of the present age as she enters into victory in Christ. And I understand why they would interpret it that way, because there are passages that speak kind of like that earlier in the Bible. But I think Revelation 21 and 22 is pretty clearly, it seems to me, about the eternal state. But do you see that that idea of new heavens and earth, that there is continuity? It's not as if the new heavens and earth commences with the second coming of Jesus. It commences with his resurrection. That's why Paul says what he says that we read on Sunday. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. He is a new creature. He has been regenerated. He has been made new. Because this new creation has already begun. Is this new creation in the fullness yet that the promise of God indicates we will one day see? Nope, I don't think so. You can spiritualize that as much as you want to. I don't think we are yet to the place where the wolf and the lamb are lying down together or we want our children playing next to the cobra's den, right? But that is the trajectory. Whatever that figurative language refers to, whatever those poetic metaphors may imply, that's the trajectory of the new creation that Jesus has begun and over which he is reigning even right now. The Bible's promises and prophecies and the entire expectation of the kingdom of God associated with Scripture is is pointing to Jesus' rule, not to the church's rapture. This is where I want you to to, to, to go back and all of the passages that, that you've have been important to you in your Christian life, maybe at a point in time, that you thought pointed to this great hope that one day Jesus is going to come like a a medevac helicopter and take us off the roof of the embassy as the orcs are coming over the walls. I want you to go back to all of those passages and, and read them again and ask yourself, is that really what's going on there? All of these promises, all of these prophecies are about the Messiah's rule over the lands over the nations, over the wicked, over this world. It's about the regeneration of the world, not its destruction. Is Jesus going to judge the world with fire? I think he is. I think, I've already said, I think that's what's going on in 2 Peter 3. I realize there's a debate about that. I realize not everybody interprets that in the same way. I think there's a final judgment described there that is for the whole world, and yet, and yet the trajectory, the hope, of these promises is not destruction, but rather redemption. The idea that the church will largely suffer defeat in the present world and must be rescued from it is defeatist and quasi-gnostic and unbiblical. 
I say quasi-Gnostic because it was the Gnostics that believed that the spirit was good and the flesh was inherently evil and that the ultimate hope was being saved from the flesh, escape from the material wicked world through secret knowledge of the divine. And I think there's a lot of Christians who love Jesus, who believe the Bible, but they have a quasi-Gnostic theory of salvation. That's basically, that, I, I hear this all the time, I was listening to an interview last week, where someone who I, I trust believes in Jesus as a good, faithful brother in Christ, but as he's describing his hope, he is denigrating everything earthly, everything physical, everything material, because it just doesn't matter at all, and all I want to do is leave this body and this world behind and go away and be Casper the Friendly Ghost. And that's not a Christian hope. That's not a biblical way of thinking about the kingdom of God at all. The idea that the church will simply survive as a remnant, as perpetual pilgrims, alongside a persistent kingdom of darkness, is itself a type of dualism and is not taught in Scripture. Does the Bible teach that we are a pilgrim people? Yes, absolutely. You can see that in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. And Yes, there's a pilgrim identity that we have. Yes, we are traveling from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And is that the entirety of the church's history? Is that the entirety of the period between the Lord's first and second advent? I deny that it is. And I deny that you can get that idea from the Bible. Is there an exile aspect to our present condition surrounded by the enemies of God? Sure. Is there a pilgrim sense in which we are sojourners and strangers in the world as we presently find it? Yes. And have the nations been given to Christ as an inheritance? And will he rule them with a rod of iron? Yes, indeed he will. What you have is a dispensational type of defeatism and a reformed version of defeatism that have an awful lot in common. Both of them are fundamentally dualistic, even if they're dualistic in different ways. That's why we say frequently that this idea of a sacred secular divide is not found in the Bible. There's a difference between the holy and the unholy, sure. But the idea of secular and sacred spaces is simply an unbiblical division. Both of those views affirm that Christ's victory and domination will be achieved cataclysmically, not gradually through the conversion of the nations. Yes, Jesus is going to win, but he's going to have to come at the 11th hour in order to do so. Yes, he is going to subdue all enemies under his feet, but he's going to do it 30 seconds before he raises all of the dead. Yes, he is finally going to achieve victory and be recognized as king of all kings, but only when he puts his victorious boot upon the throat of everyone who is still a rebel. But that's simply not the picture that we get in the Bible. Reread the Bible and ask yourself, where do I find the idea that Christians are waiting to escape this world? Now, as I said, there are passages that you could read that way. Yes, sure, there are places that you could go and kind of, as a proof text, offer that sort of an interpretation. But when you take those passages in context, and when you interpret them in relation to the rest of the scriptures, I think you would find that the conclusion is quite overwhelmingly to the contrary. 
And I don't mean that this is a simple thing. I realize that every perspective, every point of view, every position that Christians have adopted throughout the last 2,000 years on this question, there are some passages that are difficult and some passages that seem clearly to support your case. And I'm not meaning to be simplistic or reductionistic or, or certainly unnecessarily critical to any brothers who take a different view. But I think taken as a whole, the tenor and trajectory of Scripture is overwhelmingly positive in terms of its expectation of Christ's rule over the present world. An escapist or defeatist eschatology is inevitably a type of no-lordship gospel, which hails Jesus as Savior, but not necessarily and inevitably as Lord. And this is one of my primary concerns with this issue. It is not to convince you to be a post-millennialist. I don't honestly care whether you adopt that label or not. I am very interested as your pastor in convincing you to reject the pessimism that is associated with many types of eschatology that assumes that the church will be defeated, that assumes that the wicked will flourish, that assumes that the uh, redemption of the world and the rescue of God's people will have to happen cataclysmically at the end of all things. Because one of the things that that theology does is it creates a division between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. Now, escapist eschatologies do affirm the Lordship of Christ. I don't want you to hear me saying anything else. I don't want you to leave and say, well, Pastor Joel said that all dispensationalists and all amillennialists deny the Lordship of Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? Full disclosure. They affirm the Lordship of Christ. But in many cases, not all, In many cases, their affirmation of his lordship is as it is manifested in condemnation and not in conversion. Yes, Jesus is Lord, and he'll prove it when he damns them all to hell. But the Bible is saying that Jesus is going to show his lordship by bringing every knee to bow before him, every tongue to confess him, all the nations to flow to him and to be taught his law and to walk in the light of his word. It's conversion, not condemnation, that Jesus came to bring. He did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that doesn't deny that Jesus is going to condemn the wicked. It doesn't deny that there are going to be people who go to hell. Obvious, obviously, that's true, right? If we were in some kind of a liberal church that denies the existence of hell, I would need to lean harder on that idea. But, but we believe, we are well taught in the idea that there are going to be a lot of people that are lost, right? But maybe we're not as well taught or don't have as firm a grasp of the idea that there are going to be many more that are saved. That the number of the redeemed in Revelation 7 is a number that is not countable. And that's not the final number. That's still fairly early in the story. We said it before in our study, and I am not merely trying to to repeat myself throughout this series. It may seem like that's, that's what I'm doing, and maybe that is what I'm doing, but it's not what I'm trying to do, so... Be charitable if that is inevitably what I am doing. But, but I am trying to reinforce certain points at important stages of our study. We've noted before that the Great Commission is not a command to make disciples from among the nations. It is a command to disciple the nations. It is to make the nations followers of Jesus. How do you do it? By baptizing them and teaching them to obey him 
as Lord. That's what we see in all three of the uh, instances of the Great Commission being delivered after Christ's resurrection. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. I don't know how you can do that without having some kind of a Christian nation as a result. Right? I mean, it's like the Christianization, the sanctification of human society, culture, politics, is the result of evangelism and discipleship. So we don't, we don't evangelize and disciple by taking over politics. We don't take over the world by revolution. It's not with the sword. Christians believe in regeneration. We believe in conversion. We believe in evangelism and proclamation. But, but part of evangelism is what? It's telling the nations to obey Jesus as Lord, to obey everything that he's commanded, not just to respond to four spiritual laws. Mark 16, 15, Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is literally to all creation. You preach the gospel everywhere. Luke 24, 46 to 47, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Not just to people in the nations, but to the nations themselves. You say, well, well, Pastor, that could be translated to the Gentiles. Right? Fine. To all of the Gentiles. All of them. Every last one. Now, someone may object. How do you baptize and disciple nations? Obviously, you baptize and disciple people in the nations, and that's true. But do you notice that the focus in these commands that Jesus is giving is not on the individuals, it's on the society. It's on the group. There's another way to say it if the emphasis is on the individual. That's not what Jesus is doing here. It's on the collective. You go out and you evangelize the nation. All the nations, all of creation. In other words, evangelism is not like an episode of Where's Waldo? Right? Everybody, like, you probably had one of those books or something like that. You've got the nice big picture book, and it's got a bunch of colorful things, and it's just a very cluttered field, and you are looking for this one distinctive character, and he's so distinctive. I mean, he's such a nerd, and he's dressed so oddly that he ought to just jump right off the page, and he's almost impossible to find. And he represents the elect, right? Like, Waldo is a Calvinist. And this is the one elect person that we are looking for in every nation. No, we're not looking for a needle in a haystack. The church is sent out to declare that Jesus is Lord and that all of the nations have to acknowledge it and bow before him. That is what our magistrates are responsible to do. That is what every business leader, that is what every husband, father, wife, mother, child, everyone everywhere is to acknowledge What is true, Jesus is Lord, and you were made to obey him and to worship him. Psalm 2, now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. That is the evangelization of the nations that Jesus is talking about in the Great Commission. And if you doubt it, go back and read Psalm 2 which according to Paul is about Jesus' resurrection. You are my son, today I've begotten you. Paul says in his sermon in the synagogue, in Pisidian Antioch, Acts chapter 13, 
That statement in Psalm 2 is about the resurrection of Christ. He was declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. And so in Psalm 2, what do you have? You have the resistance of the rulers resulting in the crucifixion of Christ, resulting in the derision of the Father who says, nevertheless, despite what you've done, I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. He resurrects the Son. He ascends to his throne, is enthroned at the Father's right hand, and then the message that goes forth into all the world is, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Right? That's the gospel. So in summary, four points, and then we're done. We still pray, thy kingdom come. And we are not praying for God to take his kingdom out of this world. That prayer is not a prayer for the rapture. That prayer is not a prayer primarily or exclusively for the second coming. Is it inclusive of that consummation? Absolutely. But that prayer is not just saying, Jesus, come back and put an end to it all. That prayer is for the kingdom to be established, to appear, to be manifest everywhere, and to be established in the fullness that Scripture describes. Secondly, the first advent of Christ is making things better, not worse, and it's not leaving them unchanged. Third, the church's expectation ought to be of Christ's rule, not a sudden rescue or rapture. We're not gritting our teeth and hanging on until Jesus gets here. We are going forward. We're taking the battle to the enemy. We are declaring to the kings and rulers of this world, Jesus is Lord, which means you are not, which means you need to acknowledge that he is in charge. And number four, the church's mission is to teach the nations to obey Christ and to proclaim the gospel to all creation with the expectation that creation will indeed hear the voice of the shepherd and choose to follow him. All right, that's our study tonight.